Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Good morning. It is good to be with you. Really just want to welcome those that are even just new to our church in this season. We're really glad that you're here. And for those that are joining us online, we're glad that you're joining us in your living rooms as well. We're really glad to have you. Well, uh, this morning we are continuing our series entitled In the Meantime, and we've been going through the New Testament book of First Thessalonians. If you remember from the previous weeks, Paul is writing to this little young church that he had planted in Thessalonica, and he's writing in response to the good report that he just received from Timothy, who's just returned back from there. It's a pretty informal, down-to-earth letter, one of the earliest dated writings in the New Testament. Now, last week, Michael, if you remember, he tackled a really great passage where Paul is answering the Thessalonians' questions about Christ's return and what will happen to those who have already died. This week, though, we're going to be looking at the other half of his response to their questions about when the Lord will return and if it would be in their lifetime. Now, we know We know that to this day, people love to speculate about the end of the world, right? Right? I mean, there are top-selling books, there are movies, year after year, revealing humanity's interest in how and when it all goes down, right? Yeah, and people love to speculate. They love to prophesy, they love to decipher the code, right? Right? I mean, and we we can easily see that even two millennia later, how not much has changed. Who here remembers living through a projected date for the end of the world? Who here? Come on. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Y2K, anyone? (laughs) Yes, yeah. Some of you maybe weren't alive then. But hey, (laughs) um, here we are, and we've lived through quite a few of them, haven't we? We'll see. um, It's predictions like these that have actually caused many Christians to stop talking about the return of Christ. Any mention of the return of Christ is viewed as part of a lunatic fringe group. Over the last 20 years, we have seen that pendulum in most churches, that pendulum has swung entirely into the other direction. And I think it's pretty much because they've been burnt so badly by false prophecies of Christ's certain return. There are comparatively fewer sermons and Christian books out now about the future, really just the future in general, whether we're talking about the second coming or future judgment or heaven and hell. Living out your passion, pursuing your dream, and living your best life right now is our present-day obsession. And for many in the church, the overhyped teachings of the return of Christ have soured our hunger for sound, healthy, biblical teaching regarding the future and Christ's second coming. Now I get it. I mean, I get it. I mean, who here wants to have a little talk about the impending judgment, right? And death and the end of all we know. I mean, it seems pretty ominous, pretty ominous. But if you look at scripture, if you look at scripture, boy, it is unavoidable. 
It's unavoidable. The day of the Lord, or Christ's return, is taught everywhere in the Bible. <laughs> of the 27 books of the New Testament, only two small books, Philemon and 3 John, don't call our attention to the future. Almost every New Testament book references Christ's return for a total of 318 times. That's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. The second coming of Christ, is, it was not a peripheral or secondary message for the writers of the New Testament or for Jesus himself. I mean, think about it. Many, many, many of the parables Jesus told were about his second coming. Jesus constantly taught that he would come again, that he would come again. Whole chapters in the Gospels are devoted to the return of Christ. And the second coming was also profoundly important for the early church. It was so important that it was actually part of their gospel preaching. When the apostles went out and they would preach and they would explain the good news of Jesus, this was part of their message. This was part of their message. They would lay out what it looked like for Jesus to come back, the importance of that day. And it was called the day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord was far less about vengeance and it was more about justice, restoration, healing, and renewal. It was a continuation of what they called the good news, the good news that Jesus had died, that he had rose again, and that he will come again to eradicate all evil and bring the full and complete reign of his good and perfect kingdom, amen? It's the whole part of the story, it's the whole story. And, and really, this is what Paul would have talked about when he started that little church in Thessalonica, it would have been part of their study, part of the conversations they had. So really, the day of the Lord is a good thing or it's a bad thing, depending on where you stand with God, right? Where you stand with God. For example, if you are someone who's oppressed, right? You're someone who lives oppressed life, if you have gone through serious injustice in your life, trauma, I mean, you look forward to judgment. From a gut kind of visceral level, you look forward to that day. You pray for it, you want it, and you crave it. God, when will you come back and judge the earth? When will justice finally reign on this earth? But if you are the oppressor, hmm, yeah, that's a little different story, you dread it, you put it off, you deny it, you mock it, and you run from it, right? For followers of Jesus, though, this is a day that hopefully you and I, we look forward to. We look forward to because with it comes the release of all that is good, beautiful, right, and true. And if we put our belief and our hope and trust in Jesus, we do not need to be afraid of the day of the Lord or the end of all we know. We do not need to be afraid. And that is what this passage today is really all about. It's what we're gonna look at. See, what I think is that our perspective on the end of the world, our perspective on that, it informs how we view death, which is what we talked about last week, and it informs how we live life, how we live today. See, our perspective on the day of the Lord has the potential to reframe everything in our life from the ground up. Reframe everything. 
And this is what Paul is talking about in today's passage. He gives the Thessalonians and us really practical ways to be actively living in light of the end. So let's go ahead and pray and invite the Holy Spirit to be with us as we dive into his word this morning. Well, Lord, we do just that. We ask more Holy Spirit, just come. Meet with us this morning. Yeah, I pray that we would have a greater awareness of your presence this morning, just fellowshipping and being with one another than we have all week. Lord, that we would just feel the scales just fall from our eyes, that we would see you clearly as you truly are. And Lord, we just pray that you would just you would comfort and you would encourage us through this text today. Would you just give us eyes to see this life in light of the end, in light of eternity? We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and dive in and read our passage for this morning. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. You can follow along on the screens. There's also some Bibles in the back or on your smart device. So, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Hmm. Well, Paul starts right off here in chapter five by addressing their questions, which is really, uh, they wanna know when, when will the day of the Lord happen? When will it all go down? When's this day gonna happen? Is it gonna be a day away? Is it gonna be like a month away or like 10,000 years away? Like how long are we talking here, Paul? Will we see it in our lifetime? I mean, he did have to leave pretty suddenly from the, the church, so maybe he just didn't have time to fill him in all the details, right? So here they are asking about the details. But I love this. I love that he addresses it first by pretty much saying, guys, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. What does he say? He says, now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you. <laughs> we don't need to write to you, for you know very well. You know very well. So they'd already talked about it. They know very well. They're asking about specifics here, aren't they? Because really, I mean, I think their heart's good in it, right? It's not just idle curiosity. It's because they wanna make preparations, right? They wanna make preparations for the day of judgment. But Paul responds that the solution to their problem does not lie in knowing dates. To begin with, nobody knows and no one could know. Did you know that all predictions of the day of the Lord have been and do have a 100% failure rate? They all do, <laughs> they all do. Because get this, Jesus himself said that he didn't even know. He didn't even know it himself, that only the Father knows. Mark 13, 32, but about the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, 
but only the Father. So then Paul is turning their attention away from this curiosity about dates to illustrations about how the day of the Lord will come, how it will come. And he uses two metaphors here to illustrate this. First, he says it's going to be what? A thief in the night. A thief in the night. So like a burglar or a robber coming in your door at 2 a.m. in the morning, breaking through. I mean, that's like a nightmare that I have sometimes. But this is what it's going to be like. And what he's saying here is it's going to be sudden and it's going to be unexpected. And then this, I mean, you see this metaphor all throughout. Actually, Jesus uses this metaphor as well, talking about that day as well. But then he also says it's going to be like a woman who's nine months pregnant and her water breaks. Sudden and unavoidable, right? Sudden and unavoidable. That baby is coming. That baby is coming. Sometimes that's relief for a mom. I was very late with both my pregnancies. I was like, finally, we're doing this. <laughs> but that's just the beginning of the end, right? That's just the beginning of all that has to come. And here we are. So we see that, that both, with, with, when we look at both here, both are sudden, but notice that the burglar is unexpected. It's a surprise. Whereas labor is expected. So putting both together, we see that Christ's coming will be sudden and unexpected and sudden and unavoidable. In the first case, there will be no warning. And in the second case, there will be no escape. Now, whether we are ready for Christ's coming or not, like we've said before, it depends on which kingdom you are a part of, the kingdom of light or of darkness. And Paul reminds them here of exactly who they are, who they are. And he says, but you brothers and sisters, you are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light, children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So what is he doing? He's just reminding them of who they are, of their identity, right? Because it's from understanding who we are, remembering who we are, that our understanding of the end becomes hopeful and not dreadful. <laughs> hopeful and not dreadful. If you are a follower of Jesus, this does not have to be scary for you at all. Why? Because we're not in darkness. We are in the light. So we are not going to be taken by surprise and this metaphor of light and darkness, or day and night, it's used all throughout the New Testament. Jesus himself, he was the one who actually ushered in the day, or the kingdom of light, the breaking in of the kingdom of God. And yet, the reality is, as we know, at the same time, the old age of darkness has not yet come to an end. So we live in what we call the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God, where the two ages overlap. They overlap. Ephesians 5, 8 says this, For you were once darkness, but now, now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of light. Live as children of light. We're going to go into this more. Now, I notice what Paul is doing here because it's really brilliant. He starts out by saying, guys, now listen, you're asking the wrong question, right? But the right question is not, when will the day of the Lord happen? The right question is, how should we live in the meantime? How should we live in the meantime? No matter if it's a day away or thousands of years away, it will come at an unknown time and it will come suddenly. So the right question is, how should we live now? How should we live in the light of the end? And Paul goes on to give us really just three practical ways to do this, to live as children of the light. First, he says, be sober and alert. 
be sober and alert. In verses six through seven, we see this. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. And I think this is a fascinating dichotomy here. First, you have these nighttime people, and you also have these daytime people. And nighttime people are metaphorically asleep or drunk. They're not literally sleeping, <laughs> but he means that they are careless, they are lethargic, and they are apathetic. Careless, lethargic, apathetic. They don't really think about the day of the Lord or the end of the world at all. It's just kind of like out of sight, out of mind. Their head is kind of in the sand. They'd rather think about other things, right? <laughs> and, and then drunk, really meaning that they're out of control, that they're wild, and that they're reckless. They're not literally drunk, but that they are wild and they're out of control and they're reckless. Remember back in chapter four, Paul actually writes about the passionate lust of the pagans who do not know God. Society's really mantra or mantra is, is this, and has always been, and is still today, is if it feels good, do it, right? We hear it all the time in all of the advertisements out there, marketing, if it feels good, do it. But daytime people, we as daytime people should be alert, awake, and sober, which means to be vigilant, to be on guard, to be in tune and aware, aware that the day of the Lord is coming any hour and at any moment, any moment. So this word sober in Greek literally means uh, to not be drunk, right? so, but it's also a word picture. It's a word picture of being self-disciplined, self-disciplined. It's a picture of self-control in every area of your life. Boy, that's hard, but boy, it's good. Uh, maybe you've heard this uh, phrase before. You've heard that evil is good in excess. Good, but in excess. See, good things, when they're abused, what, like too much or in the wrong place, at the wrong time, in the wrong way, for the wrong reason and the wrong motivation, boy, it can be toxic. That good thing can become toxic and destructive, even at times lethal. This can go for really any good thing, uh, drink, food, sexuality, money, stuff, work, play, the list goes on. My point is that daytime people know how to enjoy life. This is so important. We know how to enjoy life as an actual act of worship to God. We know how to do that, but not in excess, not in excess, but from a spirit of self-control. That's what it means to live in the day, in the light. Then Paul goes on in verse eight, and he says this. He says, put on the armor of faith, hope, and love. And we read this, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope of salvation as a helmet. Paul here goes on beyond, really beyond just watchfulness or self-control to the actual need for us to be properly armed for Christian warfare. Mm, takes it a step farther. And I love all this imagery is really from the Roman military officers. He's pretty much saying we have to be prepared. We have to be ready to fight like a soldier if we are going to live as awake and alert daytime people. It's something that we actually have to do. We have to put it on. We have to put it on. It's a command, meaning it won't naturally just happen. 
Guys, it won't just naturally happen. The magnetic pull of this world, which is just a phrase that we use, or even that's in the New Testament, that's used for bits and pieces of culture that are at odds with Jesus's vision of the kingdom of God. So when we say that, when we say the world, that's what we mean. But the magnetic pull of the world is just way too strong, yeah? It's way too strong. With all that we consume on a regular basis, whether it's news, it's media, it's entertainment, most of which is secular to the core, if we do not fight, then we will get sucked right back into the darkness. I've seen it, I've seen it, and it doesn't happen overnight. It happens over the course of months, weeks, years. And I watch people that used to have a fire for God, a a love for Jesus, and, and it just emanated out of their, their life and their decisions and the way they talk to people. And, and then I see them, you know, years later, and I'm like, what happened? What happened? They forgot to put on something really important. We forget that it's a battle. Sometimes we forget that it's a battle. We need to be vigilant, watchful, and armed. Over time, we can drift away from holiness. That's not a word that we use a ton, but really that is the call of Jesus on our life is to live holy. And, and you've maybe heard this translation before, but it means like to be set apart, to be set apart, to literally live with a gap between you and the way of the world. Okay, so you're not meshed, but you're living with a little bit of a gap right there. Now, it's not really huge. You don't want to be just like isolated out in the country somewhere and never, ever like, you know, be at all a part of the world. That's not what God's calling us to do. He wants us to be in the world, just not of the world, right? But he's saying like, you need to live with a gap between you and the way of the world. Live in that place. Enjoy, enjoy the pieces that are good, but live differently, live differently, live set apart, live unique. Jesus said, blessed are what? The pure in heart, for they shall see God. What? (laughs) Yeah, who here doesn't want to see God? Who here doesn't want to experience God more? Who here doesn't want that that idea of just God in your head to become an actual relational reality that you live in day in and day out? Amen. I want that. I know we all want that, but that means that we need to be pure of heart. Boy, that means that we need to mind the gap. We need to mind the gap and between you and this world, and we need to stay close to Jesus, not be asleep, right, and unaware. Now, this is what I love. This is Paul's word picture here, really, of that Roman military officer If you notice here, um, he's not talking about Rome as being the enemy, even though he was actually that first century Jew who was under the boot of the Roman Empire. When he's talking about the enemy here and this, this whole idea of guarding yourself and protecting and fighting, in Paul's mind, the real true enemy was called the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's how he, he talked about it. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And the weapons that we fight with are not predator drones. They're not M16s and they're not our aircraft carriers. In this passage, we see that they are the trifecta of what? Faith, love, and hope, which is actually how he started out the letter. 
And here he's rounding out the letter with the same three things. It's how we stay connected to Jesus. Meaning this, Paul is saying, cover your heart, protect it, cover everything that is vital and important about you that's inside of you, cover that with Christ's faith and love. With Christ's faith and love. Faith, it's a gift from God. I don't know if you know this, but it's not something you're responsible for growing on your own. It is a gift from God. You can't squeeze some more faith out of you. You just can't, good luck. <laughs> it is something God gives you, it's a, it's a gift. But what it means, what faith means is taking God as, at his word. You believe it and you act it out what you believe. You live as if Jesus really is the Lord of your life even when the way of Jesus or his teachings don't make much sense to you, you still follow it. And love, boy, love is definitely a gift, isn't it? The kind of love that God has, it's a gift. It's, it's self-sacrifice for the good of somebody else. It's unswerving loyalty and allegiance to God. And then lastly, protect and wrap your head, your thoughts, your emotions in what? In hope in hope. And hope, it's not wishful thinking, guys. It's not wishful thinking or blind optimism or some kind of self-help pep talk that you do in the mirror every morning. It is not that. Hope is from God. And it is an absolute expectation that the coming good is based on God's character and based on who he is and not my performance. Amen. Amen. So what does that actually look like? I'll take it just a layer deeper here. So we fight, we fight the enemy's arrows of doubt, unbelief, cynicism, and giving up. We fight all that with faith. We fight all that with faith. We fight hate, we fight anger, we fight vengeance, we fight violence and greed and spite and temptation, which is all beautifully modeled in this world. We fight that with what? God's kind of love, real love. And we fight despair, we fight anxiety, we fight depression and melancholy with hope, with hope. See, we fight with faith, hope, and love. And Paul is saying that following Jesus, it's a, gonna be a fight. It's a nonviolent one. Get this, it's a nonviolent one, but it is a battle, isn't it? Particularly for those that were in first century Thessalonica. I mean, there was serious persecution going on for them, and it was violent for them at times. It was. It was hard for them. It was sometimes scary for them. And Paul is encouraging them with this. He's saying, yeah, you know, what's easy, what's easy is to drift into the orbit of the world. It's easy to do that. What's hard, <laughs> what's hard is following Jesus. <laughs> what's hard is following Jesus. It is a fight, isn't it? But it is a fight that Paul, in another letter, calls the good fight. The good fight. It is a fight that is so worth it. So lastly, Paul ends with this powerful declaration of truth, of what Jesus has done for us. I love that he ends with this. And he really, he says, he calls us to encourage each other with this truth with this truth to remind each other as though we might forget. And I love that because that's why we do communion, right? So that we don't forget this. Let's read this in 9 to 11. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just in fact you are doing. See, as we follow Jesus, as we fight to live as daytime people who are awake and alert, this road that we are on leads not to wrath and destruction and ultimate judgment. What it leads to is salvation. It leads to salvation. See, Paul writes clearly here that Jesus died for us and on our behalf and in our place. Jesus is the one who sets us on a new trajectory, not towards wrath and destruction, but instead towards salvation. So that what? So that we can live with him forever. He just wants us. He wants to be with us. That's his goal here. Our hope in salvation is well-founded and it stands firm in this truth that God is our solid rock because it's based on his will and what Christ did for us in his death and resurrection. And again, not in our feelings or performance, which is why Paul finally writes this, therefore encourage one another and build each other up in these truths. The word here, as we've seen before, is the word parakaleo, and it means encouragement. And it's the exact same word that is used at the end of chapter four that Michael talked on last week. And that was more comfort for the bereaved. But this translation is more encouragement for those who are afraid, full of anxiety, who are unsure about the future, right? This is the same kind of, it's the same word here. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, this stuff, this is good news. This is hope. This is something that we look forward to, that we encourage one another with. Yeah, we encourage one another with. There's someone last night who said, when she was younger, they would, instead of saying goodbye to each other, they would say, Maranatha, the Lord is coming. That's how they would say goodbye to each other. What a beautiful reminder of the truth to encourage one another. This is actually how I encourage my two-year-old when I leave for work, when I leave for work. Now, every single time, she did this last night even, which was kind of adorable because I'm like, you don't know I'm gonna talk about this. <laughs> but she ran over, she runs over. It's like she knows that I'm leaving, that I'm, that I'm leaving the house and she'll just find me. She'll start running, her little feet will start running. Mama, 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 don't go, don't go, don't go. It's so dramatic, it's, I love it. She said, don't go. And, and as so I do the same thing every time. I mean, it's like clockwork, like here I'm walking out the door, don't go. And as moms, you know what this is like, just trying to get out the door. It's a a chore. Uh, But I look, I get down and I I look at her and I sing this little Daniel Tiger song. And some of you are going to giggle because you know this, moms. Uh, I sing this song and I go, grown ups come back. And I sing that song and she looks at me and she's like, okay. (laughs) And I tell you what, that little girl holds on to that little song all day long. Because the moment I come back in the door, at the end of the day, she goes, you did, you did come back. Like it's like a shock that mommy actually kept her word and actually came back. And she's just so thrilled. It's like this little, little piece of truth that she holds onto all day long, right? And, And I think this is the kind of truth that we need to be holding to, right? Onto every day. It's to say to each other, don't forget, he's coming back. He is coming back and that we are meant to live each day in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back, right? Well, I wanna end, I wanna end with this 
There is something in this passage that when first reading it, especially reading a translation, you know, thousands of years later, we kind of miss. And I missed it the first time too. And I started digging and I found that right here in the very opening part in verse three, it says this. It says, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. Now I read, I read that, you know, just moved on. And what I realized, it's actually... Peace and safety right here was stock first century verbiage for the Roman Empire. So if I say to you things like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, what do you think of? America, right? Or, or the American dream. You think of the American dream. And that is just in our heads, right? Well, Paul, when he said those words, peace and safety, he knows that everyone's going to think the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire, and that's actually, that was their main claim. It was their propaganda that, um, that really they were the ones that conquered the world and they were the ones that brought peace and safety. And it was basically true. I mean, for the first time in forever, there really was peace and safety all over the Mediterranean. I mean, you could travel without fear. There was very little civil war during the time of the first century. It was a thriving time. I mean, business, commerce, trade, art, transportation was at an all-time high. And the world had never really seen anything like this before. It was without precedent. It was stunning in its reach, its power, and its sophistication. And here's the thing. When you live in a safe, prosperous, thriving time, it is easy to think that it'll last forever, right? It's easy to get sucked into the apathy and the materialism, the nowness, the kind of myopic focus on now, but in an unhealthy way. It's easy to put our hope in that true desire that we all have for peace and safety. And if I just get that job, if I just get into that career, if I just get that boyfriend or marry that person, or if I do that thing or go that place or fill in the blank, then I'll have peace and I'll have safety. Well, Paul is saying, guys, don't buy. Don't buy into that propaganda. Don't buy into that. I know it's shouted from the mountaintops in our, in our world today, but don't buy into it. Sure, live in your nation, live in your city, enjoy it, appreciate what's been afforded to you by so many who have sacrificed before you, but don't look to it for your peace and your safety. It's not found in more money or more stuff. It's not found in pleasure or experience. That's all great stuff. It's really great stuff, but real peace and security is what? It is found in Jesus. It is found in Jesus, in the kingdom of God, and in the world to come. I want to leave you with one thought for today, and it's this. The day of the Lord is coming. It's coming. And I know that's not very chipper, but it is true, and it is real. It is, it is not a myth, and it's not superstition. The day of the Lord is coming. But in all honesty, most of us, myself included, most of us don't really even think about it. I mean, barely at all do we think about the day of the Lord. And this might sound kind of somber to ask this of you, but this coming week, I want you to think about it. I want you to think about it. I want you to think deeply about it. We think one day everything and everyone will face the end face judgment. And I want you to think about the implications of that. 
maybe for how you live here and now. In the meantime, maybe there's somebody that you love, a family member or a friend, a neighbor maybe, somebody that you care about that you've never actually had an honest, in-depth conversation about Jesus before. Maybe for you, you're getting sucked into the Western mentality of work more, buy more, repeat. Work more, buy more, repeat. And you know it. Maybe you are flirting with or even drifting into an unholy way of life. Maybe you're being consumed by something good that's out of alignment with how God wants you to enjoy it. And I say all this because I think that truly the day of the Lord has the potential to reframe everything in our life from the ground up. It changes everything. So if you're a follower of Jesus, here is what I wanna say to you today. Don't get sucked in by the propaganda of peace and safety that the world offers. Enjoy it, but don't get sucked in. Don't fall asleep, don't get drunk, (laughs) and live awake, live sober. Fight the good fight of faith, hope, and love, and encourage one another, build one another up. Don't forget that this isn't it for us. This isn't it for us. We are daytime people in a nighttime world, right? Amen. Well, before we stand, I feel like it's important to pause here for a second and just say, if you are not a follower of Jesus, what a weird morning to come to church. (laughs) But I can honestly say, I am so glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here, no matter where you are in your journey toward Jesus, uh, or whether you're agnostic or, you know, you just don't know where you're at. That's okay. We're just really glad you're with us this morning. And, and I know this can be a totally strange passage to read and study, but there's really no way around it. I am not going to water down this passage. It's there, and it's right in front of all of us to look at, to ponder, to consider. But I would say to you, salvation... Your path toward Jesus really just is simply coming, coming to a place of repentance and realizing the way and the direction of your life, it hasn't been working for you. And it just means turning around, facing Jesus and following him, just following him. I can't believe or think of a better day for you to just consider that and say yes to God this morning and start following Jesus, following Jesus. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.